You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. The Bible reading is from Matthew 20, verse 17 through to verse 28. Now Jesus was going to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favour of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard this, they were indignant with the brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, brothers and sisters, I hope you've had a really wonderful Christmas, uh, and I'm really looking forward to being back with you in person soon. Uh, Let's pray as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, uh, and we pray that this day, by the power of your Spirit, uh, you would teach us about what greatness looks like in your kingdom. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, I saw a Nike commercial called Find Your Greatness. The narrator in the commercial says this, he says, somehow we've convinced ourselves that greatness is a gift reserved for a chosen few, you know, for prodigies, for superstars, right, that the rest of us can only stand by watching. Oh, you can forget that, he says, because greatness isn't some rare DNA strand for a chosen few. Greatness is no more unique to us than breathing. We're all capable of it. So find your greatness. I wonder if you can resonate with those words, find your greatness. I wonder if you notice in yourself a deep desire to to be big rather than small, to be a somebody rather than a nobody. And to be someone who, who, at least in one area of your life, maybe two, kind of rises above the pack to, to be better than, well, average, better better than just mediocre. I wonder if you hunger for greatness. As I watched those commercial, uh, that commercial a few years ago, I found myself both agreeing with it and disagreeing with it at exactly the same time. On the one hand, I agreed with it because I agree that all of us are capable of greatness. But on the other hand, I completely disagree with how that commercial defines greatness. Rather, the idea that if we can just look deep enough inside ourselves, we can find our hidden greatness. 
The truth is that all of us do hunger for greatness, right? It's really part of our human condition, right? Think about those opening chapters of Genesis where all of humanity united together to do what? To make a name for themselves. Now, we all hunger for greatness, but the question is, what does greatness really look like? And how can we be truly great, right? Not just for a moment, but for eternity. So today, as we return to Matthew's gospel, right, Matthew's biography of Jesus' life, we're going to answer those questions by looking at what greatness looks like in God's kingdom. And as we do that, we're going to see that in God's kingdom, greatness is found in serving others, right, in willingly bearing your cross, uh, rather than in serving yourself, in wanting to have your crown without a cross. So first, let's look at verses 17 to 19, where we see that Jesus is great because he walks on the path of being willing to bear his cross before his crown. Actually, in the preceding verses, Jesus has already put this idea of kind of greatness in God's kingdom on the agenda. You might remember in chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus said, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. And then in chapter 20, verse 16, at the end of that unit, uh, Jesus said, so the last will be first and the first will be last. Well, what's Jesus saying? He's saying that in God's kingdom, many who seem to be great will be small and many who seem to be small will be great. So what does that look like for Jesus, right? the, the king in God's kingdom? Well, in these verses, we see that it looks like Jesus walking the path of being willing to bear his cross before his crown. This is actually the third and final time in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. If you've got a Bible, you might want to flick back first to Matthew 16, verse 21, where Jesus explained to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And then if you flick across to Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23, Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And so when we come here to Matthew 20, you'll see some similarities between those two previous predictions. For example, twice Matthew tells us that Jesus and his disciples are going up to Jerusalem. We know from Matthew 16 that the Jerusalem is where Jesus is going to be killed. Now, the point is that Jesus is willingly walking on this path towards his death. Right? I say willingly, but because it seems pretty clear that Jesus is leading the way on this path. I notice that Matthew tells us first that Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, and then secondarily he tells us that Jesus takes his disciples aside to teach them. Right? Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. He's willingly walking towards his death. Indeed, the parallel account in Mark's Gospel, right? you can look it up, Mark 10 verse 32, tells us that while Jesus is leading the way towards Jerusalem, his disciples are lagging behind. They're lagging behind, Mark says, but because they're astonished that Jesus would go to Jerusalem, he knows that he's going to be killed there. Why would he do that? 
But they're afraid, Mark says, because of what might lie ahead for them. In Isaiah 40 to 55, you might remember that there are several passages predicting that one day God would send a special servant to earth. But this servant would ultimately bring blessing to the people of every nation through his suffering and death. But in that context, Isaiah 50 verse 7 predicts that God's suffering servant will set his face like flint. But he will be absolutely determined on completing the mission God has given him. But Jesus knows exactly who he is. But he is God's suffering servant king. And so he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. Right? Because he knows that his mission will only be complete when he dies on the cross in Jerusalem. So in verses 18 and 19, Jesus takes his 12 disciples aside to tell them again about what's going to happen. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. I already said this is the third time Jesus predicts his death and resurrection in Matthew's Gospel. And, but there are some new bits of information in this third prediction. First, for the first time, well, we see that Jesus is going to be rejected by both the Jews and the Gentiles. But first, Jesus says he'll be delivered over to the Jewish religious leaders, right, the chief priests and teachers of the law. Uh, but ultimately, he'll be handed over to the Gentiles, right, because the Jews are able to try and condemn Jesus, but they're not able to execute Jesus. Right? Jews and Gentiles both reject Jesus. Second, for the first time, Jesus specifically predicts that he will be condemned. Which is to say that after some sort of trial in Jerusalem, the Jewish religious leaders will actually pronounce a judgment upon Jesus. Right? They will condemn Jesus. Right? Jesus is going to be tried and condemned and executed. Uh, of course, later in Matthew's Gospel, it becomes very clear that Jesus is going to be wrongly condemned. Right? Condemned for crimes he did not commit. Uh, but needless to say, he'll be condemned. And third, for the very first time, uh, we get a hint of just how humiliating Jesus' suffering will be. Uh, Jesus says he's going to be mocked uh, and flogged. In Mark's Gospel, at this point, uh, Jesus also says he's going to be spat upon. Uh, Jesus is going to be publicly shamed and humiliated. And now let's be honest, this doesn't seem like a really big picture of greatness, does it? Right? Yes, Jesus will bear his crown, right? He will be raised to life. But before that, he must bear his cross. Right? Jesus is telling his disciples, this is what greatness looks like in God's kingdom. But the weakness and suffering of Jesus' death must come before the glory and power 
of his resurrection. Right? This is the shape of God's kingdom, the, the shape of the Christian life, suffering before glory, weakness before power, the cross before the crown. Now, this is why Jesus tells his disciples, we are going up to Jerusalem. Right? He's warning them that whether they like it or not, their fate as his disciples is all bound up with his fate. Right? If Jesus must bear his cross before his crown, then they too must be willing to bear their cross before their crown. Right? Jesus is great because he's walking on the path of being willing to bear his cross before his crown. Uh, of course, in verses 20 to 23, where we see that James and John do not get it. Right? So, so James and John are small, right? because unlike Jesus, they're walking on the path of serving themselves. Right? They want a crown without a cross. Now, take a look at verse 20. Right? Matthew tells us there uh, that James and John's mother uh, comes and kneels before Jesus to ask him for a favour. And now on one level, this seems to be a really selfless approach, doesn't it? Right? That their, their mum kneels before Jesus, which is typically a sign of real humility, even, even worship. But of course, it's not long before we realise that despite appearances, this isn't a selfless approach. Right? It's a completely selfish approach. I notice that Matthew emphasises that she comes before Jesus with her sons, right? James and John by her side. Right? It's clear that she's looking out for them. And that's why she comes to ask Jesus for a favour. Right? She wants some sort of special blessing from Jesus for her sons. And now, of course, Jesus knows that. Right? Jesus knows well, what's going on in the heart of every person. Uh, but in verse 21, he decides to hear a request anyway. He says... What is it that you want? And she says, Grant that one of these two sons of mine might sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. And when we read this, we've got to remember that in Jewish culture, they were very clear about seating plans, right? To show that the kind of relative importance of different people. So, that, for example, the greatest places were, were always at the centre of a particular social group or the head of a table or the front of a temple. So James and John's mum, uh, with James and John's support, of course, is asking Jesus to, to give them the, the positions of ultimate greatness in his kingdom. Right, just to, to the left and the right of the king. I've got to be honest, sometimes I accuse my kids of having a real case of selective deafness. Or maybe your kids are the same, or a friend of yours, I don't know. But my kids, you know, they seem to have no problem at all hearing when I say, would you like some chocolate, or would you like some ice cream? But they've got every problem in the world. And when I say, guys, you've got to tidy up the toys, or you've got to put your dishes in the washer. Well, we all struggle with selective deafness sometimes, don't we? Oh, but I think James and John must have had one of the worst cases of selective deafness ever. Oh, I mean, Jesus has told them three times, we read them earlier, uh, that he's going to suffer and die in Jerusalem. And yet they still seem to think that when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he's going to overthrow the Romans and establish God's kingdom. But, and when he does that, James and John want to be right by his side in prime position seated at the left and the right of his throne. 
right? James and John are hungry for greatness. And like lots of parents today, their mum wants them to be great too. Of course, as far as God's concerned, James and John are far from great because they're completely focused on serving themselves and their own interests, right? And we'll see in the verses that follow that this sort of self-serving attitude is really completely incompatible with God's kingdom, right? Because God's kingdom is not about serving yourself. It's about serving others. So in verse 22, Jesus responds to their request saying, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, oh, I can see that you're eager to share in all the benefits of being a part of my kingdom. Oh, but I wonder if you've really counted the burdens of being a part of my kingdom. Right, you'll notice that Jesus refers to those burdens by using that symbol, the cup. In the Old Testament, this idea of the cup was almost always a symbol of God's righteous anger against sin. For example, Isaiah 51 says, Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God, uh, who, <coughs> excuse me, who defends his people. He says, see, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. Right? The cup is a symbol of God's righteous anger against sin. So in using this symbol here to refer to his death, Jesus is saying that in his death on the cross, he won't just be receiving human anger and condemnation right, from the Jews and the Gentiles. He'll also be receiving God's anger and condemnation. Right? He'll be drinking every last drop of God's righteous anger and condemnation against our sins. So you see what Jesus is saying to James and John? He's saying, oh, I can see that you want to follow me into my glory. But, but are you really willing to follow me into my suffering? You clearly want to be associated with my crown, but, but do you want to be associated with my cross? Of course, in verse 23, Jesus affirms that, in a sense, James and John and, in fact, all his disciples will share in his cup, right? They will share in his suffering, which is to say that if you choose to follow Jesus, you should count the cost of that choice, right? You will share in Jesus' suffering. But if Jesus was rejected, you might also be rejected. Right, don't be surprised by that. If Jesus was mocked, you might also be mocked. If Jesus was hated, you might also be hated. If Jesus was marginalised, you might also be marginalised. Indeed, if Jesus was arrested, you might also be arrested. If Jesus was killed, you might also be killed. Right, in a very real sense, we as followers of Jesus will share in his suffering. We will drink from the same cup. As him. 
I mean, in the rest of verse 23, Jesus warns James and John, or sorry, he wants James and John to know that even if they do share in his suffering, it's not like a guarantee that they'll inherit the positions of greatness in God's kingdom. Indeed, Jesus says, to sit at, the, to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. Right? You see what he's saying? He's saying, it's my Father who decides where people sit in heaven, not me. Why, James and John are small in God's eyes because they're walking on the path of serving themselves, right? Wanting a crown without a cross. In contrast, in verses 24 to 28, where we see again Jesus, Jesus who is great because he walks on the path of serving others, right? Bearing his cross before his crown. I take a look at verse 24. It's quite funny. Unsurprisingly, the other disciples, we're told, are indignant. Now, let's be clear. They're not indignant because they disagree with what James and John have done, right? They're indignant because they're dirty that they didn't get in first. They're worried that they're going to miss out. Jesus is realizing that there's a real issue here with how my disciples are understanding greatness. So he calls his disciples again, together again to teach them. In verse 25, he points out that outside God's kingdom, right, among the Gentile rulers and authorities, a greatness is essentially about using other people to serve yourself, right, to, to increase your own power and glory and authority. Right, but at the start of verse 26, notice that Jesus rejects that idea of greatness. Right? Not so with you, he says. You're my disciples. You're a part of my kingdom. Right? And that idea of greatness is completely incompatible with God's kingdom. Why? Well, because in God's kingdom, greatness isn't found in serving yourself. It's found in serving others. In fact, Jesus says the one who is truly great is the one who is your servant. Right? Because serving others is the concrete expression of loving others. Which Matthew 22 verses 37 to 40 uh, says is right at the heart of living in God's kingdom. Remember, Jesus says the two greatest commandments are loving God and loving others. Right? So the one who is truly great is the one who gives expression to their love for God and others by serving God and others. In fact, in verse 27, Jesus is even more radical, isn't he? He says, whoever wants to be first, who wants to be big, who wants to be great, who wants to be a somebody, must be your slave. A slave being even more inferior than a servant. For Jesus' disciples, this idea that a slave could be the greatest in God's kingdom, the first in God's kingdom, that that... That would have just seemed ridiculous. But Jesus is pointing out that if you're constantly consumed by pursuing your own greatness, you'll be completely focused on serving yourself. And that might get you a long way in the governments and companies and firms and kingdoms of this world. But it won't get you anywhere in God's kingdom. Because God's kingdom is about loving and serving God and loving and serving others. I hope you can see that this understanding of greatness is radically countercultural. 
Uh, but in verse 28, you, you'll see that Jesus doesn't just talk about this radical idea. But he, he literally embodies it. Look what he says. He, he says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve uh, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And now on one level, Jesus is just saying here that, that uh, in his death on the cross, uh, he's going to give us the ultimate example of greatness. Right? The, the Son of Man here is the kind of king-like figure from Daniel chapter 7. You can read that later on. Uh, the king who God gives authority and glory and power over every nation. And yet here Jesus says that he, as the Son of Man, is going to give his life as a servant. It's the ultimate example of greatness. The one who is great becomes small. The one who is powerful becomes weak. But clearly it's much more than an example, isn't it? Because Jesus says his death on the cross is a ransom. I said on Christmas Day that these days, if we talk about this idea of ransom, it's usually, it's usually paid to kidnappers to free a hostage. Right? But in Jesus' day, a ransom was also paid to a slave owner to free a slave. So, so when Jesus says that, that his death on the cross is a ransom, he's actually saying something about our spiritual condition. Right? He's saying that spiritually speaking, all of us are slaves. And now, of course, I know that, that not many of us feel like slaves. Right? But isn't it true that... that the most dangerous form of slavery would be the slavery you don't even know exists. It's important that we try to understand what Jesus means by this. Well, what exactly are we enslaved to? Well, in John 8 verse 34, Jesus says, Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. See, Jesus is saying that sin isn't just about doing wrong things. Right, in a kind of isolated sense. No, no, sin is about a pattern of life where, where over time you choose to put something other than God, some person, something other than God at the centre of your life, at the very core of your identity. And Jesus says if you do that, uh, in the end, that person or thing at the centre of your life will end up enslaving you. So if you put power at the centre of your life, you'll end up enslaved to power. Right? So obsessed with getting your hands on more power that you'll sacrifice just about anything to get it. But if you put money at the centre of your life, you'll end up enslaved to money. We see this, don't we? People who just do whatever it takes to get their hands on more money. If you put acceptance at the centre of your life, it seems like a good thing. I want to be accepted by people. Want to please people. Right? But if you do that, you'll end up enslaved, controlled by the very people that you're desperate to please. Whether you know it or not, whether you accept it or not, the reality is that all of us are slaves to sin. So we desperately need someone to pay the ransom to set us free. How much is the ransom? Well, Jesus answers that, doesn't he? He says he's going to give his life as the ransom. You might say, well, that's a bit, that's a bit much, isn't it? I understand that I've done something wrong, but, but surely there could just be a bit of a punishment. 
But you see, when we sin, right, well, when we reject God, that we're actually cutting ourselves off from our only source of life. Right? Well, we're like a, a person who's been cut off from a respirator or a fish jumping out of water or a flower plucked from a garden. Right? They might have the appearance of being alive, but, but well, the reality is they're, they're dead. Likewise, in our sin, apart from God, well, we might have the appearance of being alive, right? but spiritually speaking, we're dead. And physically speaking, we will all die. And that's why the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Right? The ransom that we owe for our sin is death. And so the wonderful news of Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, is that in his death on the cross, Jesus pays that ransom for us, right? because he dies that death for us. Right? The perfect son of God who deserved freedom and life dies the death of a slave. And so that we who deserve slavery and death can be ransomed, can be freed, can be liberated to become sons and daughters of God. Right? Jesus is great because he walks on the path of serving others by willingly bearing his cross before his crown. So I wonder, how will you find your greatness? I think on one level, I completely agree with that night commercial that I started with. But all of us are capable of greatness. But we're not capable of greatness, but because we can look deep inside ourselves to find that greatness. No, no, no. Well, we're capable of greatness because we can look outside ourselves to see Jesus' greatness, right? To see that the perfect Son of God serving us by giving his life as a ransom for us on the cross. That we, who spiritually speaking were slaves, can become sons and daughters of God, right? Sons and daughters of God who, by faith in Christ, who in Christ, are seated at God's right hand, right, enjoying the ultimate position of greatness, right, not just for a moment, but for eternity. Right, let me urge you today, if you want to find your greatness in life, don't look deep inside yourself. Right, look deeply into Jesus, right, the one who served others, who served you by willingly bearing his cross before his prayer. Let's pray. Oh, our gracious Father, we thank you for this, your word. Uh, and we pray that by the power of your word and your spirit, uh, that you would shape our hearts and minds uh, to, be people, uh, to be people who seek greatness by loving and serving you and loving and serving others, uh, by being willing to bear our cross before our crown. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.